welcome to Chapter Tactics. This is your 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warhammer 40k competitively at all levels of the game, and this time we're taking it to the fluff level. That's right, this is a special fluff-focused episode where we talk about the Imperium of Man and how it compares to other empires in human history. It's a really, really great topic. Uh, It has nothing to do with competitive 40k whatsoever, so if you're more interested in competitive 40k instead of the narrative, unfortunately this is not the episode for you. However, we get into some great conversations with a professional historian blogger, Brett Devereaux, who I will introduce after this introduction, uh, because I wanted to save some time to talk to him, we had a limited amount of time, and I wanted to make sure to give him as much time to talk about the topic as possible. Uh, we also brought on Steve Pampreen of Competitive 40k Frame, and then finally Reese Richard Robbins, uh, the guy who knows more about 40k fluff than I do, uh, although he does unfortunately have to leave partway through the topic, unfortunately. And so it's a great topic. I highly recommend checking out Brett Devereaux at his blog, A Collection of Unmitigated Pedantry. It's a really good blog that talk, looks at the history of battle in pop culture. He talks about the Dothraki and what who they compared to in Game of Thrones. He talks about the, the Battle of Helm's Deep and uh, advanced cavalry tactics that actual knights use. Uh, he talks about the idea of uh, soldiers versus warriors. It's, it's a really, really good blog. I've been having a lot of fun. He's also got resources in there for a world building. So if you're someone who wants to build up an empire, build up a paramilitary organization or... Um, you know, all that stuff. Um, he's got all that as well, too, in his blog, too. It's a great, great resource. So I highly recommend checking him out. He's also at Brett Devereaux on Twitter. So you can follow him there. Before we move on to the podcast and we get into the main topic, don't forget to subscribe to the Frontline Gaming Network, your one-stop shop for all awesome Frontline Gaming and 40k content. Also, don't forget to head on over to the FrontlineGaming.org and purchase yourself an FLG 40k Events 2021 Express Pass, or Express Pass for short. Uh, This gives you a savings of over 23% off tickets. Essentially, it's a virtual ticket good for any three 40k events of your choice run by Frontline Gaming through the end of 2022. So it is COVID proof uh, because it's going to last until the end of 2022. So two years or yep, two years because we have to finish 2021 and then we have to finish 2022. So it lasts a long time. There's only a limited amount. So I highly recommend going over there and buying one now. And while you're at it, maybe uh, buy a mat, uh, some terrain, new GW items, visit the secondhand store and all that good stuff. All right, I'm going to jump right into it. We're going to introduce Brett Devereaux, hear more from him, and then jump right into the main topic starting now. Hello, everyone, and here we are with Steve, Reese, and our guest of honor, Brett Devereaux, writer of a collection of unmitigated pedantry. Brett, you've never come on the show before, so why don't you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, I am uh, Dr. Brett Devereaux. My PhD is in ancient history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Perhaps more relevantly to this conversation, I am a bit of a 40k nerd myself in my in my spare time, particularly the electronic sort of spin-off properties, Ye Dawn of Wars, Battlefleet Gothics. Uh, I've actually been into Necromunda Underhive Wars lately, um, so I'm familiar with the setting, but the practical expertise, I suppose, that I am bringing here today is that I am a PhD historian um, on the Roman Empire, particularly in ancient Mediterranean history more broadly. I also write a history and pop culture and military history blog at a collection of unmitigated pedantry, which we'll have down in the show notes, where I talk about intersections of my historical scholarly interests 
and the popular culture and the way that those things come together in interesting, hopefully interesting, I hope interesting ways. Well, I can assure you that they are definitely interesting. Uh, I know I was very excited when I found your blog through a random Reddit post and eagerly have been working my way through them. So I really appreciate you going through and putting all that stuff out there. That's so cool. It definitely uh, made me miss uh, trying to be a history major and also going, oh, yeah, this is why I didn't do this. This looks like a lot of work. So. Yeah, it, it, it is a lot of work. I had to learn some dead languages um, in there. <laughs> and Well, that's, that's pretty awesome. And I, again, I really appreciate you, you know, willing to come on here. And I really appreciate you, uh, Pablo, as well, uh, you know, letting, letting me come back on. Despite being out of the scene for a year, I've, I'm, I've, uh, I still love the, the universe. And I wanted to kind of bring, uh, bring Brett and Reese and, and you up uh, to, to talk about the Imperium of Man. Yeah, um, why don't we dive in? Pablo's having a little bit of a technical issue. Okay. And uh, so I, I will de facto try to <laughs> lead this discussion a little bit. I told um, you I told you we needed to beseech the mis- machine spirit, and clearly no one did it. <laughs> we, did not, we did not do that. Okay, well, if that's the case, I'll, uh, I'll ask uh, my first question. The Imperium of Man, their major tributary requirements of the member planets is the best one-tenth of its military forces. How does this compare to other tributary empires throughout history? Yeah, it's an interesting question. There are some tributary empires that some parts of them work somewhat like that. Um, though I, I have some questions about the organization of the Imperium <laughs> of Man. So the thing to get to the thing to start clarifying here is what a tributary empire is and why this government structure emerged historically on Earth. The tributary empires are perhaps the most common really, really large-scale form of human organization, speaking historically, um, but they're a distinctively pre-modern phenomenon, for reasons I can get into in a second. In a tributary empire, the empire itself exists to allow the imperial center, the core, to extract resources from its holdings, typically to fund military activity, at a minimum of administrative overhead. And it is that last thing which may strike (laughs) Uh, 40k aficionados is somewhat discordant because the administrative overhead in 40k is massive. (laughs) Um, The big advantage um, of of a tributary empire is that you don't need to get involved in the everyday government of your tributaries. You don't care. This is a system where so long as they pay the taxes, the tribute, whatever it is, they can go about the rest of their day just fine. You don't care. All you want, to put it kind of very bluntly, is their money. Now, I say their money, historical tributary empires might extract any number of things as tribute. The earliest tributary empires are mostly extracting agricultural products. If we're looking at, say, the Bronze Age in Mesopotamia, tribute is being paid in a mix of agricultural products and precious metal. This is, for instance, the case if we move into the Iron Age for an empire people may be familiar with, the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, they're extracting, they're extracting their tribute, at least initially, primarily in precious metals and in agricultural products, say bulk grain. So how would they go about negotiating that kind of tribute? Because that's what at least strikes me as what's unusual is how do we talk about the best one tenth of the military? How do you decide what that is? And, and how do you decide, even if you're not doing necessarily military, but, you know, war material, how do you decide how much a planet, or in this case, a you know a region of the Comedian Empire, would uh, tribute? 
So uh, it, it's interesting um, how these tend to emerge. So the context in which you're imposing tribute is invariably the same. You have defeated their armies, besieged their cities, and are wrecking the place. Uh, a tributary empire, <laughs> right? A tributary empire is a giant protection racket. You pay the tribute so that I don't crush you uh, more. I'm probably already crushing you a fair bit. Um, you pay the tribute to make me go away. Now, what tribute I assess, you know, that's going to be dependent on our relative levels of power, how willing I am to actually sit in your country and ruin it until you pay me what I want, what you have that I want. And often, because these tend to be very traditional societies, the easy expedient was to say, look, you used to have your own king and your own army and your own stuff. Well, that's fine. Whatever you paid for that, you now pay to me. Hmm. Um, and so this is, for instance, the Persians very frequently would do this, that they would move into a region often controlled by a different empire or a different king. They would defeat that king, and then they would just impose, look, whatever you used to pay to him in taxes, that now goes to us. And, you know, that eases the administrative transition. It, it eases it eases that burden. So that, can, that's... Oh, good. Sorry, Brett. Yeah. If I can segue just... Just one point, because we left it behind and coming in. Would tribute ever be in the form of troops? The answer to this is yes. Um, it is fairly common for some portion of tribute to be in the form of troops for the army. Um, the, the Persians actually do this, um, uh, giving that example. Um, we have, for instance, on the tomb of Darius I, he has this um, wonderful relief showing his sort of army um, arrayed with all the soldiers in their distinctive national garb, they're all dressed kind of as, as their own national stereotypes with, in trilingual inscriptions above and below, the names of where they're all from. So that the person huh. looking at this royal artwork can see, ah, oh, the Persian army is so huge. It's got soldiers from here and there and there and there and there. And the requirement to send soldiers would have been part of the deal. Um, perhaps the most famous example of this is the Romans in Italy. Mm -hmm. um, the Romans, I, I joke with my students, I'm, I'm going to mix up our pop culture today. I joke with my <laughs> students, the Romans follow the Goku model of imperialism. I beat you, therefore we are friends. <laughs> um, that uh, within Italy uh, and the various communities of pre-Roman Italy, they're ethnically different, they have different languages, they share a lot of cultural and social structures, so they're broadly compatible. And so what the Romans will do in Italy as they defeat and absorb, or ally with and absorb, um, other, other Italian peoples around them as they expand to come to control Italy, uh, the only requirement they put on the Italian states that they, that they absorb is the requirement to furnish soldiers for the Roman army. Hmm. And so Rome resembles, as one scholar put it, a gang that pays new initiates with the proceeds of the next person they rob, and everyone they rob is initiated into the gang. <laughs> um, so they're just, they're just going to... The Romans mug you now that they've taken some of your stuff because they loot your country and they take yep. some of your land when they beat you. And then congratulations, you're now in the gang, and we're just going to go the next hill over and loot the next guy with our combined army, and we will kind of reward you with the spoils of that, and we're going to keep going. 
so that by the time the Romans have all of Italy conquered, a little more than half of the Roman army at any given point is made of these allies. They call them the Socii, the, the allies. And so the Romans are actually able to mobilize a tremendous amount of resources from Italy because they're not dealing with all of that administration. When a Roman arm, when Rome decides to go to war and the Roman armies are called up, all the Romans do is send one official out to all of their allied communities and is like, we're going to war, so you have to send your contingent. Here's where it should show up. And, and there they go, and they go off to their next, hopefully, victory. And in this case, Rome is always at war, so <laughs> this is happening every year. Yeah, the guy just lives there. Just, yeah. like, just like the 40k Grimdark. Yeah. It's always war. <laughs> now, now, in this case, unlike the poor Imperial Guardsmen who go off and never come back, right, there's a sort of a cycle. So you would bring that group out for that campaign. And when that campaign was over, it might be one year, maybe two years, they would go home and you bring out the next group. Yeah. And so the Romans are sort of cycling through the population of Italy. There's some evidence, our evidence here isn't great, there's some evidence to suggest um, that they're essentially cycling through them as they hit military age. And probably the average Roman spent something like seven years in the Roman army, probably mostly in their late teens and 20s. And the average uh, non-Roman Italian, probably around five years in the Roman army, probably around the same stage of life. Um, and so the Romans can generate this sort of perpetual military steamroller out of these arrangements where the only tribute they're demanding from the Italians is troops. Now, when they expand outside of Italy, they'll decide that those people outside of Italy aren't necessarily as militarily compatible with them. And so the, the tribute they're going to impose on them is in cash money. Mm -hmm. So what you're or saying is Imperium is accurate, historically it's just, uh, reasonable. Just about to say that, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a recognizable, it's a recognizable system for sure that this is a, yeah. tributary, that this is a tributary empire. There are a few things that are weird about it. So let's go ahead and I want to rewind this a little bit here okay. because uh, I think our listeners were, as you were talking about the Roman Empire, Brett, they were replacing Roman with Imperium and then just <laughs> word for word comparison. Um, it's obvious that someone at GW did their homework when they created their world and created the Imperium of Man. However, uh, there was also a little bit more parallels to what you said earlier about a more modern uh, tributary empire. And so I want to briefly talk about the Imperium of Man and how it's progressed. Uh, so there's two eras of Warhammer 40k. There is Warhammer 40k as we know it, uh, grim, dark, constant war, humanity's on the brink of extinction. It's all terrible, and that's kind of that kind of blends into that uh, defense bracket. The the we it's defend you. It's yeah. the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah, it is. That's exactly what it is. Uh, but there's also another era called the Horus Heresy, or 30k, 10,000 years before the settings of Warhammer 40k. And that's very much when the Imperium is at its strength and it's constantly expanding. And so that's, that's I think, uh, that parallels to the Roman Empire when they expanded, conquered. Basically, the Imperium of Mad would go to a planet and say, hey, we're, we're going to defend you from something. And then the governor's like... Ah, what? And the Imperium says, well, well, we'll see. But for right now, <laughs> if you don't listen to us, it's going to be us. Uh, and then usually they would either conquer or destroy or, you know, initiate them into the Imperium of Man peacefully. So I, I love all of that. The, height, the height of the uh, Imperium was under Sola Macarius, who was like, 
a very thinly veiled analog for Alexander the Great. And even his ending is the same as Alexander's. He, his armies abandoned him because he wants to keep going over the horizon. But um, that's a good point. Right? Like the 30K is the... Well, I guess it would go back even further, but the 30K was with the Emperor as the expansion, and then it's the kind of the end. And like a, a good... I don't want to jump too far ahead, but with the um, the events that have occurred recently with the Imperium being split in half, it's like Byzantium and Rome at the end when they basically split into two empires. Um, I think there's a lot of analogs that are being drawn there. That's super interesting. So my, my question for you, Brett, because uh, there was a, a point to that, uh, was the Imperium of Man went through a process, a change of being two different kinds of tributary empires. Uh, the first being focused on expansionist, um, resource gathering, kind of flexing their power, if you will. Uh, and then they transformed into over 10,000 years, a tributary empire needing to survive. You know, you give us our resources because we're your last line of defense. We're humanity's last line of defense. And so what are some like examples of that history? Uh, and how does an, a tributary empire like that work? Or what's the process of, of that specific evolution in history from one to the other? I mean, certainly as, as any sort of tributary empire, right, expands, um, naturally, you sort of function of your square cube law, um, your frontier grows, um, often frustratingly faster than the interior, just due to the raw geography. And so you do almost invariably, well, since no, unless you are the Mongols, um, none of these things is expanded indefinitely, you do eventually reach a point where the demands of maintaining current frontiers begin to eclipse what you're using to expand. Um, for the Romans, this famously um, happens under Augustus, um, who, uh, you know, as Octavian, he wins a series of civil wars. He becomes the first real sole ruler emperor of Rome. And he then embarks on several decades early in his sole rulership of filling in the map, for lack of a better of a, a better phrase, of um, filling in. There were sections of Spain the Romans had never quite conquered. Um, there were sections in what today would be the border of France and Germany the Romans had never quite lined up. He begins sort of filling those out. And, um, you know, famously, uh, the campaign in Germany goes poorly. Three legions are lost, the Battle of Stuart <laughs> Forest. And... It seems to be at that point that Augustus makes the decision and communicates this to his successors. Look, we've got to focus on holding on to what we have as opposed to continuing expansion. And that shift from an expansionary phase to what I tend to refer to as frontier maintenance uh, happens in a lot of cases. And it often comes with significant changes in the structure of the military. Augustus is no exception. It is in this exact period as the Roman state is both transitioning from republic to empire and from expansion to frontier maintenance that the Roman army is professionalized. That instead of the armies of conscript call-ups that had been used in expansion, Augustus <laughs> yes, Augustus sets the size of the army. These will be volunteers. They will serve 20-year terms in the army, which is later extended to 25 years, and then... Uh, upwards to 30. Um, these guys get stop-lost and they get terribly upset. <laughs> so, but, so what, And they're going to get paid, they're going to get retirement bonuses, and they're going to be professional soldiers. 
So what you're saying is that golden era of the Roman Empire that Augustus ushered in was really just long-term frontier expansion management? Right. Well, it, it's, it's, yeah, I'd say frontier management. So you've decided you're going to stop expanding. And mm-hmm. um, there certainly are Roman expansions afterwards. Um, the Emperor Claudius invades Britain. Um, probably a waste of time. We all know there's nothing useful on that island. Um <laughs> And um, Trajan um, invades Dacia, what today would be mostly Hungary. Um, Also, probably not a great choice. Just the natural frontiers and defenses weren't fantastic. But for the most part, the Romans sort of settle on this Mediterranean empire with the sort of recognizable borders that you will find in any textbook map of the Roman Empire. Um, And the system that they've constructed to manage that, which... Uh, is in some ways similar to and in other ways very different from what you see in 40K, is a system whereby um, all of the empire that isn't Italy is taxed by Italy, by the imperial core, because the whole point of empire is to extract other people's money. So you don't, you're not taxing yourself in an empire. That's not the point. Um, you're extracting other people's money. The rest of the empire is taxed, and that money is primarily used to pay the professional armies, which are an almost 50-50 mix of Italians in the legions and non-Italians in the auxiliary cohorts. They're in roughly even numbers. And those armies are then stretched along the frontier as a sort of hard shell to the empire. So if, right. if we're trying to compare this then, I think that goes on really well into the next question I was going to ask, which is the Imperial Man, they respond to threats by the local area sort of just sucking up like the local garrison and, and the war material and the tithe. And then depending on how bad the incursion is, they just make an ever larger ring. That's how they describe them pouring resources into it, which is very different than what you described as sort of that hard exterior core. Um, so the relatively peaceful regions don't actually support the more agitated ones. So it doesn't sound like that's how previous empires had worked. It sounds like this might be a, an aberration, either inaccurate due to the resources or maybe accurate due to the issues of you know, space. Because this is why we're kind of able to compare this to a pre-modern empire is because the the distances involved in space make it seem and feel a lot more like going from, you know, northern Britain to southern uh, Israel, uh, you know, by walking than, you know, it is in modern times. So I guess the, the question is then, do you think this is a realistic response then um, for them to have? Or do you think that setting up more permanent garrison and spreading your troops around is, is something that, that would be uh, more likely to occur? So it's missing one element. But what it reminds me the most of, you do get compartmentalized defense systems. One example of this is the Byzantine thema, or theme system, um, which the Byzantine Empire develops in the early Middle Ages. Um, the, uh, the Byzantine theme system, the way that this would work is that the, at this point, by, by the time we're in the 800s, 900s, the Byzantine Empire really controls what today would be Asia Minor, sort of modern-day Turkey, and Greece, and not a lot else. Um, mm-hmm. What is done is that that territory is divided into a bunch of smaller provinces called themes, and each theme has its own local military force, its own localized army um, that of part-time farmer soldiers who provide local defense. 
And then in the capital, in Constantinople, there is the Tagmata, the professional full-time field army. And the idea is Mm. that local problems, right, if you have a local problem and the theme army can deal with it, it does. But if they get hit by a major invasion, that theme is going to sort of uh, man the walls of fortified cities, try to hold the line, and send a message back to the capital. And the Tagmata, that professional army with the emperor leading it, is going to roll out from the capital, picking up the theme armies as he goes along, and arrive with this big composite force in theater to ideally see off the attacker. And so you can, in those situations, get this kind of steadily widening ring of military involvement. What 40K seems to lack is some sort of tagmata force. There isn't some sort of giant military force hanging up above in orbit over over Terra at any given moment, waiting to launch off in order to reinforce these efforts. So, Wouldn't that uh, be the Space Marines, though? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was, I was actually, <laughs> actually, you know what, Reese? So, um, Brett, the, the the thing about the Imperium of Man is that uh, unlike um, unlike the Byzantine Empire, there's a lot. Obviously, they have access to a lot more resources. Um, so there are different military branches in the Imperium of Man, right? And they do have a, a scaling, you know, invasion factor or uh, standing armies. But because the universe or the galaxy is so massive, that is kind of the the big tension in the war is that the galaxy is so massive they have all these standing armies uh with varying degrees of elitism and fighting capabilities but they can't be there all at once and so it's this constant fluctuation of you know is this fleet how close is this fleet to this sector how close is this fleet to this sector the you know these are badass custodes guys they just got back from this sector so they're close by um so they're you're lucky that they're there but they wouldn't normally be there. It's just a constantly moving empire. So it'd be like if you know you had the Tagmata, but they were constantly moving around all over the countryside, putting out fires. And so some fires get put out faster than others. Right. Yeah, and the, the Imperial Guard or the Ashmilitarum Doctrine is that they respond with the PDF and then they send ever more human resources and then just overwhelm the enemy with... They just keep sending in, I guess, the Tagmata, as you very interestingly described it. And they just keep sending in more and more of the uh, reserve forces until they overwhelm their opponent. Because that's how they win, is by just sheer numbers. Well, it was, it was really interesting that you mentioned the, the purpose of an empire as extracting resources from uh, other places so that basically to, to run your army. Because when we look at the tithe, uh, uh, the planets that don't pay the tithe are the space marine homeworlds, as well as um, a few, uh, I think it's like Terra, Mars, and there's a few basically special privileged planets. So if you more divided it up into sort of like allied empires with a, you know, a, a Byzantium uh, like center of the space marines, I think that's not a bad um, comparison, what you're talking about. That's really interesting to hear about the, the local countryside farmers which sir sound like uh, helpless PDF forces in front of Tyranid yes. invasion. <laughs> I, I guess my, my question for you, Brett, is how sustainable um, is that? Uh, something like, should basically, should the Imperium of Man even exist just based off of that factor alone, having all those military branches? Is that realistic or is that, I mean, obviously we're talking <laughs> re- realism, take realism with a huge grain of salt here. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I think looking at the Imperium of Man, one of the big things that's striking if you sort of try to piece out its org chart is how markedly independent its various elements are. There isn't really a unity of command, for instance, between the Inquisition, the Adeptus Astartes, the Imperial Guard, even the Imperial Navy. These groups cooperate sometimes. <laughs> um, and, and that's really striking. And what Honestly, that brings to mind for me is a period of Roman history uh, called the Crisis of the Third Century. Um, what happens in the in the Crisis of the Third Century, which uh, unsurprisingly happens at the back half or so of the Third Century, um, <laughs> is uh, you have political instability um, in in the Roman state. It's a period of fifty years and forty nine emperors, most of whom die violently. And because of this and repeated civil war, you get power fragments across the empire. At one point, I mean, you literally have the Roman Empire split. There is one emperor in Rome. Um, There is another emperor hanging out in essentially northern France um, who is not friends with the emperor in Rome. And then there is is, um, the queen of Palmyra controlling the eastern part of the empire in theory, in the name of Rome, but in practice, she's doing her own thing. And in that context, you have a lot of units moving confusingly and at cross purposes. And one of the things you see um, is this process, the, it's referred to the vexillation of the legions. Um, a legion, a Roman legion, was a military unit of a standard size, about 5,000 men. Now, 5,000 is a pretty chunky unit in ancient warfare, and so you might at some point need to split part of the unit off to go do something. And if you did this, um, it would be called a wexilatio, uh, so named because they would have a wexillum, a flag, that would mark them because they couldn't bring the legionary eagle standards because they're not the whole legion, they're this detachment. And this period of, of kind of chaos, these legions keep getting sort of sliced up like a pizza, into these smaller and smaller vexillations that get increasingly scattered every which way, creating all sorts of confusion in the command system, and it's something that eventually has to get resolved under Diocletian and Constantine, who, at the end of this period, put Humpty Dumpty back together again, (laughs) and um, among other things, are forced to reform the army, and one of the reforms that they actually do is create a sort of a separation between um, the elite field army, um, which at, at that point is the comitatus and the soldiers in it are the comitatenses, and the border guards who are less elite, though probably still professional soldiers, um, the limitani. And um, in a way that somewhat mirrors the sort of because the Imperial Guardsmen, for the most part, are still full-timers in the army. They aren't like farmers on the side. It's yeah. the mirrors. The Imperial Guard is a less well-equipped, less elite, but still full-time professional military. And the, the, the Comitatenses arrayed around the Emperor in some ways as the Space Marines. This is our elite crisis force. And the idea was, again, that you might have small conflicts all along the frontier... And the emperor could essentially drive the comitatenses to whatever conflict was most pressing and deploy that elite army against them. Of course, the downside is that it meant that you you know, typically only had one or two of those elite armies. They could only be in a couple places at once. 
if you had more problems than field armies, you were in trouble. <laughs> that's, uh, that's actually a great segue to something that I also wanted to talk about. I'm glad you brought up the Horus Heresy, uh, Pablo. One of the uh, things that came out of the Horus Heresy was this strict division of all of the units into uh, I, how you described, like, okay, there's these Vexillatas breaking apart all over the place, but for the uh, forces of the Imperium, they're separated into, like, okay, this is a regiment that only does heavy artillery, and they don't talk to the, you know, they don't talk to the Navy, they don't even talk to the machine gunners, they don't even talk to the infantry. Like you said, there's no unity of command. So is there any sort of historical equivalence that we could find to a, to an army that was like this separated? And I guess, was that effective? <laughs> a reasonable answer is no. Uh, yeah, well. <laughs> I, I, think, I, think, I think the answer here probably probably does have to be no. I mean, the, the closest examples I can think of really are going to be in medieval Europe where you have situations where there is notionally a kingdom of France, but in practice... Uh, mm. as as uh, players of Crusader Kings will know, power is so fragmented that there really is no unified France. And so there are many armies in France that are theoretically French armies, but no one can really order them to fight collectively. And the answer <laughs> to was that effective is no. Unity of command is important. Cross-communication between branches is important. Um, your artillerymen need to talk to your machine gunners or they're not going to be able to place their shells in the right place. Uh, not the least of which because... Right, artillery, uh, even today, much less in the grim darkness of the future, is shooting over the horizon in a lot of cases. Right, a direct yeah. fire artillery has not been a major factor in warfare since the First World War. This is one of the great mis mistakes the French made in the First World War. They came into it in 1914. Um, you know, they had they had a wonderful little light uh, artillery piece um, that was a direct fire artillery piece. It was very good. Um, and they found themselves in a war where once the trench stalemate set, up, set in by the winter of 1914, direct fire artillery was remarkably less useful. And they found themselves having to crash produce much heavier guns with much longer ranges because in a trench warfare situation, your artillery wouldn't survive long enough with a direct line of sight on the enemy position. It's going to get blasted away by their, in, their long range indirect fire artillery. Um, and if you look at the models of the equipment that the Imperial Guard uses, um, they're drawing very heavily, visually, inspirationally from World War One equipment. Those big guns that are elevated up to a 30, 45 degree angle firing in high arcs, right? That's indirect fire artillery. They're 120 inch range. Right. Firing over <laughs> hill, over dale. Um, at targets they can't see. And so they're going to need someone to tell them where those targets are. Um, to spot those targets for them. Uh, real quick, Reese, Reese has to go do some things. We're going to have to say bye to him. Oh, bye, Reese. <laughs> Wonderful chatting. Uh, sorry, guys, I had, I had uh, uh, something relatively minor pop up, but uh, incredibly interesting conversation. Can't wait to listen to the rest of it. Awesome. All right. Back on, back on track. Get us back on track, Steve. Uh, sure. So... I think that was a really good uh, a, a really good rant, honestly, because one of the questions as well I wanted to ask is how do you think the the amount of material needed to supply uh, a World War One style army, uh, you know, when the, those 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 very visceral pictures, and I know you wrote a very interesting article about how the battlefields of World War One 
were so important for the early movie industry that now whenever we show any kind of battlefield, it ends up looking like uh, it got blasted by high impact artillery. Um, I think that's that's really fascinating and also talks about the amount of resources that need to go into maintain a standing army that that fights that way compared to trying to maintain, say, like a Roman legion. So do you think there is kind of a, you know, do you think the economic setup of the of the Imperium and and how it's that like that the tributary empire how we how we talked about is that really going to be able to maintain the amount of material needed for a for a, a standing army that's that's firing bullets as opposed to swinging swords? Do you think that would make a big difference? Uh, I do think it would make a big difference, and this is actually one of the points I was hoping would come up because you know I mentioned at the beginning tributary empires are the most common pre-modern form of large-scale human social organization, and that word pre-modern, right, is an important caveat. There are no tributary empires anymore. Um, that doesn't mean we've done away with empires. We haven't. Um, we still have some, and I won't spark a political debate by suggesting the names of some. But the emergence of the modern period, and in particular, um, the Industrial Revolution, changes the way you want to have your empire organized. Because mm -hmm. you're no longer looking at just absorbing food and money um, from your periphery in order to feed your interior and your army, you're now looking not to feed your people. That's not the immediate concern you have because industrial productivity has made that easier. You're now looking to feed your factories. And so mm. we see a shift to the early modern empires that are essentially extractive empires, that they are looking to extract raw materials. Um, sometimes those are agricultural goods, um, you know, sh your sugar cane. Sometimes they are um, uh, palm oil for machines. Whatever it might be necessary right. to that your factories Rare might metal want. Rare right. for bullets. Yeah. But yeah. also your iron ore, your copper, your tin in massive quantities. Whatever your capitalist uh, overlord says they need more of. Right, what they need more of. And you're transporting that to the imperial center, which is where all of your factories are, um, to feed the factories in order to keep that economy running. And of course, it is the odd nature of industrialization that you can cram a tremendous amount of production into an extremely small space. And that's really the difference in organization if you want to look mm. at tributary empires versus extractive empires. Tributary empires are uniquely linked to agriculture as the primary producer of wealth. And in a, in a, low, in a situation where you've got low productivity agriculture, where agriculture is the primary producer of wealth, is the primary driver of your economy, the only way to enlarge your economy is to expand your land territory hmm. to get new fields. Right. Because that that's the only You're, way. Right. Geography is the limit. <laughs> that's right. The, yeah. Once you industrialize, once you have the Industrial Revolution, you detether the size of your economy from the amount of raw agricultural land that you need. And so the structure of your empire changes to match. Um, what's What's striking is that the Imperium of Man is still organized very much as a tributary empire, and production of munitions and so on is, is understood to be highly localized. It's very bespoke, right? Uh, different yeah. regiments have wildly different equipment, uh, yeah. mostly. It's not even one lasgun type, which was, right. I, was, I was flabbergasted actually reading through the fluff. I thought there was just one lasgun. Of course, it's a lasgun. Nope, there's multiple types. Right. Uh, mostly so that they can they can sell more figures. 
Okay, we're uh, not yeah. going to, you know, besmirch <laughs> the uh, name of GW here. Uh, this is all 100% based on what we think the future is. Uh, yeah. But uh, in practice, I think what you would probably expect is an effort to at least centralize some of this production, assuming it's possible. And that gets into, I think, really interesting questions, which I don't know if they're fully answered in the Reams of Fluff, which is really questions about transport costs yeah how does trade work yeah so this actually is really interesting right because the the imperial man is is an empire um but it is very much made of made up of of multiple smaller empires and you know uh, sectors and you know every sector has their own governors and there's representatives on terra uh that represent their you know collective solar systems and you you really see that in um if you want to focus down on uh, McCrag or the Ultramarines Empire. I don't want to bore you too much with this, Brett, but essentially the Ultramarines have a Primarch named uh, Reboot Giamin, uh, Big Bobby mm-hmm. G, bless his D. Uh, he's an amazing, <laughs> an amazing statesman. He's kind of... Uh, he also gets um, back up on a 3+, plus and it's does. the worst he, mechanic he's, in he's the a, game. He's a, um, <laughs> he's a, a, a political Mary Sue, right? He's this larger-than-life, mm-hmm. I can... I can make anything happen uh, on a political scale or a military scale um you know he's he's meant to like he's meant to be the guy that molds an empire together and keeps it all running like he mm-hmm. he definitely wouldn't have the roman empire definitely wouldn't have fallen if he was the you know the leader <laughs> exactly. essentially is yeah. the the point of of Rabud Giamin. so the the big factor with the way the imperial man works is that there's this distance that's always been the case no matter what because space is massive uh and the threats are also massive and because of this distance 40k doesn't do a ton to explain what like how everything gets transported it's kind of just everything is self-sufficient right so if you take any given solar system every planet can sustain its people until it can't then then they get they usually they would get wiped out or you know yeah i devolve into techno feudalism or something you know well, but, to talk about that, it's not that it's not explained, Pablo. There, there is right, but it's just so dangerous that no one bothers to do it. There's no, there's no, not enough money anywhere for it to be worth to be trading on any sort of large scale. I mean, of course, everyone, you know, the whole thing started with with rogue trader, right? So those guys are trading, but their name is literally rogue, right? Like it's unusual, you know? Yeah, it's, well, it, it, <laughs> so, it's exactly right. So, so if you look at like a localized solar system, like, like McCrag, for instance, uh, they, they have everything they need to just be an empire. Like they're, they're very self-sufficient. And this is actually uh, talked about in fluff and like, like with Imperium Secundus uh, with basically, do they even need the Imperium? Has the Imperium of Man been wiped out? And that that's uh, a whole thing. But uh, onto a question for Brett, with some with a fractured empire like this, because that's what the Imperial Man is, it's very fractured, separated by a lot of distance. Where everything, every little pocket empire, if self is self sufficient, is trade even still needed at that point? Um, because generally, what happens with the Imperial Man historically is that if a solar system fails uh, and they lose like their hive world and their their production planets, they usually just get wiped out, uh, and then the Imperial Man. Holds smaller. off the invasion at <laughs> yeah. the next sector because they've got you know hundreds of thousands of solar systems or or whatever, right? Right. Kinda so, like I mean, I think there are a couple of a couple of things to note there. Uh, one, of course, is that leaning back on the tributary empire as a model, in some ways, a tributary empire is a solution to the problems of distance you're describing. Okay. Where 
the part of the structure, part of the reason you structure it should be generated the way you do is that it allows you to harness the resources of other regions without necessarily having to get down into the nitty gritty of day-to-day administration. Remember, you don't care so long as you get paid. And so the imperial overlord might, in the Roman example, for instance, you put a governor in place. His job is to make sure the taxes get collected, resolve any disputes that would get in the way of the taxes getting collected. But for instance, if you lived in one of the Roman provinces, generally speaking, the Romans on the ground might be very few unless you're on the frontier where the armies are. If you are in, say, the interior of Roman Greece, well, there are no legions stationed in Greece. So what does the Roman government look like in Greece? Well, it's a governor and his entourage. Um, We actually have an inscription, um, I think it's from Delphi, where the Roman governor visited, and um, his party, actually, no, it's Delos, and his party is recorded, and he had about 50 guys with him. That's the Roman government in Greece. Congratulations. (laughs) You know, Greece probably has something like a million, a million and a half people living in it at that particular point in history. The Roman government is 50 guys. How do people live? Well, everything else is administered by your local government. Now, what's different is that if you are a tributary empire, the one thing you do not want that local government to have is a significant standing military force. That is going to encourage them to decide they don't need to pay you tribute anymore. You're going to show up for your tithe of men, and they're going to say, you know, if I kept these men behind, I could fight you off. Especially if you're dealing with situations where the distance is so great that an army from the imperial center can't really even get there. And that's where I think the the 40K universe has a bit of a disconnect um, as to why these uh, outer regions don't simply break off into smaller, more localized states if there is no help coming from Terra and Mars. And to be fair, that does happen <laughs> all the time. That's that's how you get, that's how they justify the guard on guard action in, in fluff. Uh, however, the, it, and this is something I've always been bothered with, but I get that it's, it's 40k, it's, it's their thing. Um, the, the whole Imperium of Man is kind of romanticized to be this perfect empire. Like they've mastered the art of war. You know, it's just, they do everything for the greater good to preserve humanity. And so whenever these uprisings do happen, they usually just get quashed, right? Uh, Eventually. It might take a few hundred years, but we're, you know, when you're talking about an empire that's spanned 30,000, 20, 30,000 years, a few hundred years doesn't matter. So the, your, your small planetary government, your small, you, you know, community might find a few centuries of solace away from the Grand Empire, but eventually the Space Marines are going to come in and wipe you out. So the, I, I agree with you. I think that disconnect is is um, does make it a little hard to compare the Imperium of Man to, you know, the Roman Empire, the any historical empire for that matter. I, I think it it actually. The, the more we're talking about this, and I'd actually, I didn't have this planned out, but this is literally just from speaking here, what it really sounds like is how we're describing it is much more of like a, coal- a coalition of like smaller empires that have a generally agreed alliance to not fight each other, which is not, as Pablo said, not always held to. But when you talk about breaking off, sure, there's no benefit really to... Um, or there, there's there's no you're like hey why am I paying you tribute right you said to the to the center right but if 
all of the responses are localized, they're not really paying tribute to the center. They really are just kind of like minding their own and then, okay, we worship the emperor, but, you know, let us fight these Tyranids and, uh, you know, that's that. Maybe we'll have like more of an alliance and get some help from some other local empire space marine, uh, you know, mm -hmm. centers. But it, that's what it, you know, in, in, it works because uh, it's it's a lot, you know, Humans are generally going to like humans more than they like the other guys. Yeah. Uh, so it, uh, well, it lets it kind of work, but that's what it really starts sounding like with with how you're describing it. Well, well, I would like to point out that that they do still pay tribute. They, they you know, they the Imperium Man would def definitely still needs resources. The tribute is primarily planets give uh, human men to space marine chapters that are close by, and so that kind of funds your your elite strike force. Uh, they there's still hive worlds. You need humans to give hive hive worlds, and then you know we uh, also you have to sacrifice you know thousands and thousands of souls that have this rare gene <laughs> that one the in a Sykana trillion humans thing has. Does kind of break apart there a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there's, but that's they what I mean. It's it's kind of like part tribute. of a coalition, though. You know what I mean? Where it's like yeah, okay, yeah. like we'll give you your psychers. You can come call our planet, but like you know we're going to be ruling ourselves. We're going to be defending ourselves and. Most of the tribute we pay is 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 to our uh you know to our local space marine chapter on their planet, which you said is is fully, um you know it's fully self sufficient, and I I don't think uh and and Brett I mean maybe uh you know about some parts of uh, demon infested history that I'm less familiar with, but it's it's really hard at least for me to think of a period where you might have trade so restricted by the idea that like oh literally you can't go from one region to another or there's a significant percentage of um you know of the trades just not going to get there i mean maybe i'm I'm underestimating the danger of sailing across the mediterranean um i know i read that you know we judge literally the economic activity of like the world at certain points by how many shipwrecks we find and, and <laughs> so like clearly that's like they happened a lot um but maybe i'm i'm maybe i'm i'm underestimating that is that was it that dangerous to trade is that something that we can compare it to or is is uh fighting off demons really more dangerous than trying to sail across uh the carthaginian ruled uh seas of an early roman empire uh fighting demons <laughs> is probably more dangerous um so i mean obviously we do have quite quite a lot of quite a lot of shipwrecks but of course those shipwrecks are accumulated over a tremendous amount of time and they represent a lot more ships, uh, generally speaking, in terms of, of uh, by mile traveled, it was much cheaper and safer to move by sea than by land. Mm. Um, generally speaking, when you look at uh, empires of this sort, um, generally speaking, what allows them to cohere in the long term is a degree of interconnectedness. Um, if you look at the Roman Empire... Roman Empire coheres in a way, for instance, that Alexander's Empire does not, um, in part because the Roman Empire is, is, is built around the Mediterranean, and we tend to think of um, the Mediterranean, we see, think of seas as sort of barriers, but the Mediterranean wasn't a barrier, it was a highway. And it was mm. the highway that connected Rome's world. And it isn't an accident that Rome just kind of sits like a jewel roughly in the center of it. Um, connecting all these areas, so Roman armies could quickly move from one side of the empire to another. You just put them in a boat, and off they go. Um, <laughs> food from Egypt could be quickly and economically shipped to feed the city of Rome, and was. Um, uh, the Roman, the grain dole that the Roman emperors used 
in part to keep the poor of Rome from rioting all the time. Uh, most of that grain seems to have come from Egypt and North Africa. It came in by sea. Um, certainly by the first century, Italy is a grain importer. Um, it cannot feed itself because the city of Rome has gotten massive. And so that interconnectedness is necessary. To take another example, if you look at the emergence of different dynasties, which you can take, um, for instance, the Han at the end of the Warring States is a good example. Um, dynastic power in China um, is always strongest around the navigable rivers. Hmm. Um, and that's, again, not an accident that there yeah. is a geographic unity between these navigable rivers, which, of course, all run out to the same navigable coastline. Because for the empire to function, it needs to be able to, one, at least credibly threaten that the imperial armies can show up at your doorstep if you don't do what they say. And two, it needs to be able to get messages and administrators to move along these routes. Now, um, you know, in a way, I mean, the Imperium of Man is is reminiscent of something like um, the experience of of the Han at the very beginning of the Three Kingdoms period, um, where imperial power fragments away from the center, the various periphery commanderies are increasingly independent. Um, that said, that isn't a recipe for long-term success. That leads to the <laughs> dissolution of the Han. Um, right. You can see something similar in the Western Roman Empire as it collapses um, in the 400s, that power fragments to local rulers, and those local rulers increasingly don't see why they need to take orders from some fellow um, speaking Latin um, in Rome when they have their own local armies that can do yeah. their own local things. And so they don't take orders, and once again, power fragments, and eventually the sort of the, the core can't can't hold. Um, so I think, I think. Oh, go ahead. No, you go. You go. Uh, I was going to say, I think that's a really great segue. Reese brought it up earlier, uh, and I know probably some of our listeners are want to hear what do you think uh, about the Great Rift uh, that's opened up recently and. Frankly, I'm not the most up to date on it. I'll let Pablo explain if, if you're unfamiliar. But um, I'm I'm curious to see what you think about uh, how the Imperium of Man's gonna gonna go down uh, and how how things are gonna go down over the next century uh, as the Imperium of Man gets split in two by the Great Rift. Yeah, the Cicatrix Maledictum, I believe, oh. is what it's called. Uh, so Speaking essentially, this <laughs> this is uh, this is <laughs> the the 40k writers' attempts to add a geography to the 40k empire right um the eye of terror the realm of chaos is is meant to be that barrier from one solar system to another so any all the systems centered around terra in that cluster are naturally going to be more loyal uh they're, they're going to be less susceptible to being conquered uh to rebelling uh because they are close to the to terra to the the center um as you say, they've got they're the imperial... the, how, exactly. how do you say it? So Soki? Soki. Soki. Yeah. They're the Absolutely. they're the Soki of the 40k. <laughs> and so before before this great rift happened, uh the, the only real the only real things that, that uh were barriers between one solar system and another were distance. So you had like have like the outer rims, the outer worlds, uh which which, you know, in, in any galaxy makes sense. Uh if you look at any star or any uh science fiction universe, Star Wars, Star Trek, 40k, the outer worlds of a galaxy or the outer edges of a galaxy do tend to be, you know, more the wild, rebellious, wild, west. More wild, wild west because of <laughs> distance. Uh, and then also the Eye of Terra, everywhere around the Eye of Terra. If you went through the Eye of Terra, you'd 
obviously get attacked by demons. Uh, is very much uh, no fly zone. Uh, <laughs> tend to avoid it. Bad for business. Whatever you want to call it. And so that was 40k before the the Great Rift happened. Then you know, of course, Cadia fell. Rest in peace, Cadia. Uh, Abaddon opened the rift and and unleashed basically split the galaxy in half with this great rift. Uh, And then that's when 40K started introducing narrow passages, right? So there's, uh, I I don't know what it's called, but there's essentially, there's the narrowest point between normal space and normal space and uh, uh, chaos stuff, whatever whatever it is, the the realm of chaos. Uh, And that's uh, an important part that, uh, important part of space that Gilman fights for because it's so close. uh, There's, you don't need to travel far relatively in space to get to the other side to get to normal space. So, you know, it's kind of like this this bridge or and this isness. channel. It's yeah. yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's a channel. Uh, and there's a couple planets that are, are kind of at the mouth of that channel um, that are very, very important. So they're heavily fortified uh, because if they fall, you know, the, the distance gets longer and all that stuff. And so that's what the Great Rift is. It, it's essentially a giant barrier to entry. And I actually forgot, I went on this, I actually forgot what the question was. <laughs> well, I, 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 I think that was, that was helpful. We were just trying to kind of set the scene mm-hmm. for what the great rift is. And, oh, okay. you know, uh, so, so Brett, I guess, uh, if, if your Roman empire was, uh, split in two by, uh, say a giant earthquake, uh, what, uh, what, what do you think the results would, uh, would be of that? So fascinatingly, we, don't need to speculate because the Roman Empire was split in two. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> Spoiler. But but not by not by a giant earthquake. Um, oh, okay, so, fair enough. Um, you know, I mentioned the 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 comitatenses, the elite soldiers of the field army arrayed around the emperor. Um, one of the uh, realizations of Diocletian at the end of the crisis of the third century is putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. Um, he's centralizing the army around himself. Is that having just the one field army and just the one emperor is too much. And his idea was initially to have four emperors, two senior emperors, two junior emperors. That doesn't work out. But his idea of splitting the empire more or less down the middle, an eastern half and a western half, each with its own emperor, theoretically cooperating with each other, um, does more or less stick and becomes the system... Um, through the 300s and into the 400s AD that the Romans are going to follow. And the answer for what you would expect is that um, this, that cooperate in theory is going to be less true in practice over time. That, um, you know, in the end, what ends up happening is... um, the split creates a situation where the eastern part of the empire has most of the resources and most of the population. It's the wealthier part of the empire. It has a serious security problem, um, which is that it's exposed to a pure competitor empire, the Sasanian Empire, um, which is a Persian empire, but not the one I mentioned earlier. It's a different later Persian empire. But the, the Sassanids, uh, you can say Sassanids or Sasanians, both is correct. Um, they are a real deal threat to the Romans. They are a pure competitor empire. They are large, organized, aggressive, and centralized. Um, And so the eastern part of the empire generally faces that problem. The western part of the empire 
proceeds to get hammered by waves of in-migrations of Gothic and Germanic-speaking peoples, quote-unquote barbarians. Uh, this is a very visual medium. You can't see I'm making air quotes around the word barbarians. <laughs> um, and, you know, by and large, this is a situation where, in theory, the far better resourced Eastern Empire should come galloping to the aid of the West. In practice, right, the emperors in the East are always prioritizing the Sassanid threat over the Western migration threat. And so the Western Empire basically steadily crumbles because it's the weaker half, um, mm. while the Eastern Empire survives. And so what, I mean, I think in terms of your sort of long-term expectations here is the far side of the rift is going to, uh, one, probably become, because it's now more administratively distant, it's more difficult to move big armies there to enforce order, right? It's going to start to drift out of the control of the government in Terra, on Terra. And just generally, given the balance of where the very populous, very wealthy, very productive worlds are, it's probably also going to be the weaker half as it drifts mm -hmm. out in fragments. And so... Uh, I wouldn't buy real estate there. <laughs> yep. And that's actually very accurate because that, that aptly describes what the current state of the narrative is in 40k. So that's I mean, the big you can, tension. You can definitely tell that Diocletian may have had that plan, but I've been to where he retired. It's in Croatia. Uh, he knew which side of the empire to pick. <laughs> yes, although more or less in the middle, right? That's um, true. Yeah. He, he, is, he, is, um, he is more or less thinking of sort of in the middle. And it does... It does work. You do have emperors from one side bailing out the other, um, you know, fairly late. Um, uh, the, the classic sort of counterexample is in 378, the Battle of Adrianople, um, a catastrophic Roman um, defeat. In this case, because the emperor who arrived in the combat area first chose for political reasons not to wait for his co-emperor to show up with the second half of the army. And mm. he thought he could win it on his own, and he um, bungled it. Oops. Um, and he ends up losing one of the field armies uh, almost completely. And this was an effort to prohibit the Goths um, from moving into the empire. And by the time, you know, the chaos of losing an army and an emperor um, is put back together, there's really no prospect of getting the Goths back out again. Um, and so you can see how those problems are going to develop. And then you move a little bit further forward and you have situations where very literally the Eastern Roman empires are, for instance, bribing the Huns to go be anywhere else. And anywhere <laughs> else is, of course, the Western, Western Roman, Roman Empire. Empire. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that sounds unfortunate. It sounds like uh, uh, every, anyone who's been on a group project uh, could have seen that one come in uh, Diocletian. Um, that's. That's certainly fascinating. I think is uh, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what parallels they they draw in the in the fluff to that because uh, I think they definitely knew at least a little bit of what they were uh, what they were doing. Okay, so we do have one more question after this, and that kind of leads to another topic that I'm actually really excited to talk about. Uh, but before we get to that. I have a question, one final question for Brett to tie this up in a little pretty bow, and then we're going to take a quick. 10 second break to talk about our sponsors. So Brett, everything that you know now about the Imperium of Man uh, uh, as an empire, uh, take all of that knowledge and apply it to this question. Will <laughs> it survive? 
And I'd like to point out that the entire point of Warhammer 40k, of, of, of the fact competing factions, is that can humanity survive all these threats? Will chaos and evil prevail? Or will humanity and more chaos and evil prevail? <laughs> uh, uh, and so how sustainable is an, an empire like the Imperium of Man? Keep in mind, you don't need to give a very serious answer. I'm just very <laughs> curious to hear what your opinion would be on it. So, I mean, I think the Imperium of Man, just by its scale, it has advantages, although uh, it's it's clear that its structure has gotten to the point where it struggles sometimes to uh, leverage advantages of scale. And one of the great advantages the Romans had was their ability to deploy at scale, to concentrate the forces of to concentrate a lot of forces at a single trouble spot when other parts of the frontier were clear, um, you know, the Imperium of Man uh, struggles at this, you know, because of the issues of, of, of distance and, and time. Um, of course, no empire lasts forever. Um, 10,000 years is a pretty good run. No, no <laughs> terrestrial <laughs> empire um, has, has managed that. Um, you know, uh, the, the Roman Empire, um, you know, the first Roman over, real overseas expansion is in, is in um, 260, it, it begins, the process begins with the invasion of Sicily in 264 BC. Um, the Roman Empire really starts coming apart, uh, properly speaking, in the 450s, you know, AD, you're looking at about 700 years of, of a run. That's unusually long. Um, for for these sorts of empires, generally speaking, it that long run is part of why the Romans leave such a cultural mark on uh, particularly the European parts of their their empire, which tend to still speak um, Latin. Right, uh, Spanish, Italian, and French are all just modern derivatives of Latin. But there's also a real Roman cultural impact in the eastern part of the empire too, although it's often mediated through the language of Greek. Um, one way, uh, this doesn't answer your question at all, but it is interesting, one way that the Imperium does seem to me to be similar to the Romans is that over time it's developed into what we might call a core-wide empire. Um, when the Romans begin expanding, they're expanding into areas that are culturally very, very different from themselves. Over the centuries that they control these regions, the locals pick up some Roman habits, they might pick up Latin or Greek, um, the Romans pick up some local habits. Roman soldiers start wearing pants. Um, something that I might note, stodgy, conservative Roman authors complain bitterly about um, <laughs> because, right, Romans wore tunics and togas. They didn't wear trousers. Um, and, you know, Roman soldiers get up to Scotland, and I suppose, you know, the first time the winter Scottish wind blows up under your tunic, you suddenly realize that trousers are a great idea. Um, and so there is... Um, you know, to a degree, you have locals picking up Roman customs to a, a degree of Romans picking up local customs. And over time, there is a slow process of assimilation. Uh, the term these days, scholars don't like to use it so much, but you'll still hear it from time to time is Romanization. Um, that sort of overplays the one directionalness of it. It's, it's really <laughs> multi-directional. But over time, you get the emergence of a sort of cultural koine across much of the Roman Empire to the point where, as the empire is collapsing, people who 600 years earlier had been brutally conquered by the Romans 
are fighting tooth and nail to try and save the empire because they identify with it. And this is the one thing that is remarkable. The Imperium is similarly, we call it a core-wide empire in a lot of respects, that even people on remote planets in the Imperium, they have the same, in theory, the same religion um, and the same language and many of the same cultural customs as the rest of the empire. That is something that is fairly rare in tributary empires and usually only happens when they're around for quite a long time. Um, Yeah, and you don't even need to go as far as religion or culture. They're, They're literally just the same race. That's their that's their big time. <laughs> yeah. We're humans. We're the in in some instances might be the only humans for millions and millions of miles. And I I think to talk about you mentioned the the rivers connecting stuff. I think in this case you might end up with maybe not the Imperium of Man may not continue, but uh, something like Persia or China, where it's like okay, it's not always the same dynasty. It's not always the same person ruling. But, like, if you kind of draw, like, areas around it, like, there always seems to be some nation, country, state that's, like, roughly in this area and, you know, from a long line of history. And I hope that's not too offending my history professors making that broad categorization like that. But I think it's a very <laughs> interesting thing to bring up, the uh, Brett, and I, I really love that answer. All right. And so we finally have the answer from an expert professional. The Imperial of Man will fall. <laughs> At some point. (laughs) At some point. That is the sound of all of the Imperium and Space Marine players leaving. I know. (laughs) I love love the start, though. That was great. 10,000 years. That's a good run. You should be proud of yourself. That's great. (laughs) Uh, uh, And now, uh, if you want to hear the sound of the rest of the listeners listening, let's take a moment to thank our sponsors. And that is, of course, the Frontline Gaming Network. Head on over to the Frontline Gaming Network where you can find all of our awesome podcasts that we have on. Chapter Tactics is not the only podcast on the network. Also, Frontline Gaming is now officially sponsoring all of the podcasts on the network. So head on over to FrontlineGaming.org to buy your awesome exclusive events, multi-pass, FLG mats, ITC terrain. And if you're listening to this and you're one of uh, Brett's students or one of uh, the followers of Brett's blog, you want to get into 40k deep dive into that you can buy new inbox gw items there as well all right well we are we're at the the final question that i wanted to ask you brett and i'm I'm giving you uh full permission to rant i really loved what you had in your most recent blog uh you're talking about the freeman myth and you had a long talk there about the difference between soldiers and the difference between warriors and uh there's probably some um, some references there that maybe not everyone's going to get, so definitely go read Brett's blog. It's super cool, super awesome. Um, but the one that I wanted to ask, and we've talked a lot about the the design of the Imperium, uh, the organizational structure, uh, you know, and the culture and how that organization and the people interact. So, if you're looking at a space marine, you're looking at a guardsman. Uh, do you consider them to be warriors, or do you consider them to be soldiers? Uh, the Space Marine is a warrior and the Guardsman is a soldier. Uh, and it's not at all unusual to have that dichotomy inside of a single military where there is an elite class of typically aristocratic warriors, and often they serve as officers, and then the common combatants are essentially soldiers. And to get into the the, the distinction, because these words don't mean the same thing, they're sometimes treated as they mean the same thing, right? A warrior... Uh, right, it's in it's in the word there. It's someone who wars. 
a warrior typically finds their core identity in the practice of warfare. Um, your warriors are um, often they are warriors because it is the class, it is part of the role that they are born in. Um, a knight is a knight is and a warrior because his father was a knight. It is an inherited status. Um, if you look at say um, Mongol uh, steppe nomadic culture. All adult males in that culture are expected to um, to fight. They are warriors, and generally speaking, um, warriors are more individualistic. Um, they're more focused on individual aims and individual goals, and their status is is tied to that. A warrior remains a warrior when the war ends, and a warrior remains a warrior whether fighting alone or in a group. That doesn't mean warriors can't fight collectively. They can. Um, Contrary to what you see in movies, medieval knights did not fight out on their own. Cap- medieval cavalry tactics were group tactics. Um, I have a discussion of this in the series on uh, Helm's Deep and Rohan. If people want to read it about cap- medieval cavalry tactics, nice. uh, in as much as they definitely do not appear in uh, the Lord of the Rings sometimes. Um, in contrast, right, a soldier, uh, obviously an individual who's soldiers, um, a soldier is um, it actually uh, comes, um, the, the etymological root of the word soldier comes from pay for service, um, from the sold, sold French root meaning pay, which comes from the Latin word solidus, which is a late Roman gold coin. A soldier is someone who gets paid. Um, so it's like calling we, them like dollars or something. Right, right. Dollar men, paid men, yeah. yeah. But obviously the word means more than that because we have the second mm-hmm. word, the mercenary, that means that now. Um, but we, the core of what a soldier is, is that a soldier is, um, rather than an individual who fights for individual aims because they individually are a warrior, a soldier is a, um, an employee, fundamentally, they began that way, not necessarily a permanent one. I want to come back to that with the Imperial Guard in a second. Who is fundamentally about both being in a group and in service to a group. A soldier fights for a community. A warrior fights for himself. And and this is a, a core distinction. Amusingly, you can find this distinction even as far back as Latin and Greek, which have separate words for warriors and soldiers. In Latin, you have bellator. Um, which is literally warrior. The Latin word for war is bellum. So a bellator is a guy that does war. Um, but Roman soldiers are never called bellatores in our sources, except in poetry to fit meter. Um, Roman soldiers are milites. Um, milites, the singular is, is miles. And the word that, that M-I-L um, uh, uh, root is the same as, as in our word mile. Um, and in the Latin mile, meaning thousands, it's a thing lumped together, right? A mile is a whole lot of feet. Um, and so the milites are literally group men. They are men put together. Um, and so that collective identity, both soldiers fight as a unit, a soldier alone is no longer a soldier and soldiers fight for a unit, for a communal grouping that is larger than themselves. Whereas a warrior is generally, the motivation that brings them to the battlefield is personal and generally related to their identity. Um, now, the oddity for the 40K universe is that the Imperial Guard rarely goes home. 
That was uh, that was my next question. That's actually why I brought this up because I think there are some good, interesting distinctions there from what we consider a soldier. So continue. Theoretically, they could go home. Right. They could, right. but it's not part of the to the job. Uh, you know, not guaranteed. The, 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 yeah. Say there's no health care. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and this I think is 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 one of the parts where I I think the sort of cool grim darkness kind of gets out ahead of how the system would function. <laughs> You know, a space marine, they live in the chapter. That is their identity. They are, right, like gene-seated, trained on hell worlds for that purpose. And it is what they live for, and it is their identity. But the Imperial Guard soldier, man, a week ago, he was working in a factory. Um, Mm -hmm. He had a family. He had a sweetheart. You're not going to motivate him by telling him he never gets to go home again. You're going to motivate him by telling him when you win, you get to go home. Or you're going to motivate him by telling him if you put in a certain number of years, maybe you get, this is what the Romans do in the imperial period, you put in your 20, 25 years, you get to go home and you get a nice big severance package where you can buy a farm. Um, and you can set yourself up as a sort of stable economic unit. Um, non-citizen Roman soldiers got citizenship on discharge uh, in, in the imperial period, and they specifically got a form of citizenship, they got a nice little bronze plaque, as a side note, uh, oh. which was called a diploma. That's where we get our word diploma. Oh, okay. um, And cool. the grant of citizenship covered the soldier, anyone he might marry, and any children they might have. Mm. Right. To specifically, it's going to cover his family unit in perpetuity to provide that value because you have to provide some way to motivate these guys. You know, look, um, uh, you know, the Imperial Guard, right, they have the commissars in the back waving pistols. Um, that's, uh, obviously, um, the Soviet Union did that. Uh, you can do that. But that was not the only way the Soviet Union was motivating its soldiers. Soviet propaganda about what in Russia they still call the Great Patriotic War was yeah. intense. Um, various Soviet peoples, uh, many of whom had not been particularly engaged in the product of the Soviet Union up until that point, understood that the Nazis were bad and killing people. Um, now, to be fair, Stalin, also bad in killing people, um, but sometimes it's our monster over their monster. And a lot of them were very much personally invested in the cause. And of course, they thought they were going to go and beat the Germans and then go home. And so I think this is one area where there is a sort of a disconnect where I wonder how this system works. What keeps the Imperial Guard from just fra- fragging their commissars Taking and taking their transport home into hell with this, what motivates them? And the setting doesn't really have an answer that I found. So th- there is a bit of an answer. Um, it, it is a bit of a cop-out, to be fair. But essentially, a, a, an Imperial Guardsman is motivated by fear, nationalism, and propaganda. There's, there's essentially it. There's nothing else to it. Sometimes you get to ride in a cool tank, uh, and uh, they, they do romanticize that a little bit in fluff uh where you know depending on a what kind of guardsman you are you can be cool or not you can be a catachan so you can be like rambo uh and you've got big old thick muscles and you're you're wrestling space dogs down to the ground and killing them with your bare hands uh and then you know it there's varying degrees of motivation uh now i i would like to point out that even by by our our standards the the normal imperial guardsman is still very much uh in a lot of cases, a warrior soldier as well. Um, and I know you talked about this in your in your series, The Universal Warrior, how the two terms aren't necessarily mutually exclusive when you're talking about 
a specific role someone fills uh, and that someone can be both a soldier and a warrior, which I think is also what the space Marines are too, right? And the reason why the 40k universe it, it blurs those lines is because of the constant need for war, right? So using the space Marines as an example, they're soldiers and warriors. Uh, their entire craft is is all about war. And to what degree... You can argue some Space Marine chapters are more warlike than others. Uh, some Space Marine chapters will conquer your planet and then cuddle you and give you, you know, resources and, and let you succeed. Other Space Marine chapters will conquer your planet and leave you there to die and fend for yourself. Uh, so there are varying degrees of, of war-like um, identities. Uh, however, a Space Marine is still very much a warrior in that they, they will follow orders, they will conquer your planet for the greater good um, to preserve humanity. However, a Space Marine isn't going to become a florist afterwards, right? They, they would, if there was no war, Space the Marines no would have literally clause. nothing to do, yeah. right? They, yeah. they, they, all they do, and you actually see this in a, a lot of uh, you know, science fiction, right? Like the Spartans are another great example. Spartans from Halo, the Halo series, they're literally genetically bred superhumans bred just for war. And they're also, they're soldiers. They, they soldier on, they, they do all the grudge work of what a soldier does, but their, their only craft is war. Um, and so I guess my question for you, uh, Brett is having kind of like giving that definition of these soldier warriors to general military I, or uh, personnel in 40k are they more warrior or are they more soldier or do they deserve their own distinction i mean I, so I, I really do come back to the the real question is is how these individuals relate to their broader society and okay. yeah you know a, a warrior is a warrior by identity um warriors and soldiers can be doing the same activity in in combat um although they, they often tend not to the question is how they relate to their society, and it gets down to the space marine is never going to go back and be a florist. Um, that's not a part of his... Uh, it, it's striking at, at no point... Um, if, if you are a medieval knight, uh, which, is, which is a decent sort of war, a type of warrior to look at, at, at no point do you stop being a knight. When the war is over, you're still a knight. You wait for the next war. Um, that is a part of your identity. You were born a knight. You will die a knight. And the only exception, generally speaking, is if you decide to become a monk, an equally totalizing profession. Um, you know, this is this is part of your um, identity. By contrast, right, the, the, the quintessential soldier is the peasant. He is enlisted in the army. He is trained. Maybe he's a professional that spends decades learning his craft. But at the end of that, when he is an old man, he is going back to his farm. Um, he has a different life that is the core of his identity and a different set of, of values. And I think that, that that the Imperial Guard really does kind of fall into that, that they are, they are regular fellows. A lot of them, they've enlisted in their planetary defense force. If they've gotten pulled up into some larger conflict, you've got to imagine that they're hoping that at the end of this, they're going to get to go home again. Yeah, and and I, that's I, I think that's a really that's a really good point. Call out, Brett. Uh, that's a really good point. Yeah, that it's I, I remember reading through, and I was specifically looking about this because I was like, what? Uh, that was uh, I, I I wrote out the question. You already mentioned it, so I didn't bother asking it. But like, how does like a Roman recruit cycle compare to like a guardsman recruit cycle? And and we we kind of already covered that. The other thing though that I think might put guardsmen and and uh, I, I might disagree a little bit on the soldiers, just because. 
to your point, maybe the grim darkness gets ahead of itself. Well, I'm just going to read it and just believe what they said. Um, I'm, I'm not going to question it. Is I, I feel like the guardsmen as well kind of move a little bit more to the warrior side of the scale because of how they interact with the civil society. Because when we learn about you know how the tithe works and and how the the war material is taken, it's all taken basically at the point of a gun. And that, to me, sounds a lot more like an extractive warrior elite, even if they're dressed up. They're in the garb of soldiers. You know, they, 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 have, they say all the right things. But when you look at the organization, the guard really strikes me as uh, however they get there. But once they're in the guard, they, they really strike me much more as the extractive warrior elite of a society rather than the soldiers representing the civil society that they so, get in. I'm, I'm going to disagree here. Because Brett hit the nail on the head, and, and Brett, I know you've, I know you have a response to this too, <laughs> but uh, Br Brett nailed it with the when you age out of no longer becoming useful, but you're still alive. I believe that that's kind of what a core of what a soldier is, right? Brett talked about a soldier retiring and going on his farm. Well, why does he retire? Because he can't fight anymore. Because he he's a he becomes a liability. And so soldiers need a purpose. If you're a soldier and you know you're eventually going to not be a soldier anymore, you're not going to be able to fight, you, you, you're a soldier. Whereas a space marine can live hundreds and hundreds of years and there will always be some war use for space marines. Like they literally, space marines literally have, are so warrior-like that they, if you die as a space marine, they revive you and put your <laughs> essence into a war machine so that you can keep fighting until you die again. <laughs> uh, but Brett, go ahead. I'm I'm sorry, Brett. I mean, I just wanted so, to add that real quick. Yeah, and two things. One thing that that I do think is interesting in this in this contrast to aging out and going home is that you don't age out of being a knight. Um, mm -hmm. We have you know 60, 70 year old uh, medieval aristocrats. They head onto the battlefield onto their horse. They're a knight. They stay a knight. Um, one wonders how effective they were. Um, <laughs> but, but they're out there. I mean, Sir Barristan. From Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I can cut through you all like butter even at this age. Yeah. No. Um, right. But it stays part of, of their identity. I think if we do want to take, um, to take the setting at its word that the, that the Imperial Guard units once pulled up from the populace, you know, they never, they don't generally don't expect to return and they're never going to return then I think our real-world equivalent would be the Janissaries, um, Ottoman um, oh, slave soldiers, yeah. um, right, who are selected from typically the non-Muslim population of the Ottoman Empire in as boys in a selection process referred to as the Dev Shermay. Uh, it was often deeply resented by some populations in the, in the Ottoman Empire. Um, and they were then fully separated, but not as adults, right, as boys, um, and trained for combat in this fairly elite infantry corps, um, where, in essence, um, then their cultural belonging becomes the Janissary Corps. They identify as Janissaries. All of their friends, all of their social connections are with other Janissaries. Um, you know, you talk about what motivates the Imperial Guard if you do want to view them like Janissaries. So, one, um, Fear does not motivate anyone to stay in combat. Um, getting shot at is just as scary as the commissar in the back, so that's not going to work. 
Um, fancy propaganda will get you to the battlefield. It will not keep you on the battlefield. You need mm-hmm. some stronger form of motivation. Uh, on the blog, you know, uh, a plug for the blog, uh, we talk about cohesion, and I come back to this point of cohesion. What holds a unit of men together under combat stress? And one way to build cohesion in a military unit is through these horizontal bonds between the men of the unit. And that can work for soldiers. It can work for warriors. Um, And so if you get to the point where we'll hold these units together is not their loyalty to the emperor and not the commissar in, 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 in the back, but it will be the loyalty of the men to the men standing next to them that will hold them together. Now, if you are the commissar in the back, the danger there is that it means if one guy in your regiment wants to frag you, they all do. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, this is a problem with the Janissaries, who quite famously very nearly end up running the Ottoman Empire um, in what's called the Auspicious Incident, folks can Google. Um, it's an amazing be- name. I will have to look that up. Because, uh, and, and in, the, in the end, the Janissary Corps has to be disbanded. Um, because they uh, consolidate power among themselves because they are their primary unit. Um, Large cores of slave soldiers like this do, they can be very cohesive. Uh, They also tend to seize control of their states. Uh, The most famous example being the Mamluks in Egypt. The Mamluks were Turkish, mostly Turkish, not all Turkish, mostly Turkish military slaves um, brought in by the Muslim rulers of medieval Egypt, um, mostly ethnically Arab rulers, we're talking about um, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate and and forward, and the consistent tendency by which um, governments would begin uh, incorporating into their armies large numbers of Turkish military slaves, followed by those guys seizing control of the state, I mean, it's it's weirdly almost like clockwork. It happens six or seven different times in different places. Um, so if you, weirdly, if you are the commissar or the governor general or the, uh, the imperial guard general, um, the promise that those soldiers get to go home is a useful way to keep that buddy cohesion on your side. If you tell them they never get to go home, and they're going to wonder why they're not running the show, which is not something you want them to begin wondering. <laughs> which, to be fair to Games Workshop, they have absolutely done. There, there are absolutely instances in the fluff of the Lord Commissar getting fragged uh, and uh, one overly charismatic soldier taking over the entire planet and ruling. You know, I, I think I think you're absolutely spot on, Brett, in that it does happen. Um, and I think that that's probably the big, if you were a uh, an administrator in the Imperial Guard uh, or Astro Militarum, that'd probably be a big balance that you have to manage, right? How much propaganda am I doing? Or do, does this planet need a little bit more, you know, incentive? Or are these guys rebelling? You know, so uh, well, I, gonna, I imagine. What you're going to come back and tell them, the way you're going to square this circle is that you need their loyalty to each other to be balanced by their loyalty to the political system. And now Mm -hmm. the Imperium of Man is big and abstract. They can't attach, like humans, they're not going to attach to that. That the idea of like, you know, the Emperor protects, again, it will get them to the battlefield. It will not keep them together on the battlefield. Battle is scary. Um, 
So what you want that other tether to be is to home. Um, you want them to be fighting. They're fighting for their unit and they're fighting for home. And for that home to feel real, they have to imagine that at least some of them are going to get back there. That's going uh-huh. to make it valuable for them. And so if you want to keep them moving forward against the Tyranids, right, one wave after another with their crappy las guns and flak armor um, <laughs> getting mowed down by gene stealers, uh, if you want to keep them moving forward, you actually want them moving forward with the promise that when they win, at least some of them are going home. That's going to be useful for you as combat motivation. And of course, it only works if as kids, they knew guys who came home. Yeah. So uh, obviously GW doesn't have this on hand, but this is why whenever I talk about the, the fluff of GW um, and people ask me like, Pablo, where would you go if you, what, what would you be in 40K if you had to choose? And this is why I would always go to McCrag. McCrag is a well-run system where I imagine Guillemin's got a great universal healthcare plan, <laughs> uh, retirement plan. Uh, so uh, there's probably other systems that have more rebellions than the others, specifically because of for those reasons. So if you were a fan fiction writer or someone looking to create a narrative campaign and you want a lot of guard rebellions take away their health care plan. Don't give them a retirement plan. <laughs> you know, put them on death worlds where they, they don't, you know, <laughs> they, they don't have anything to live for. But if you want your guardsmen to be good, loyal soldiers that cool. don't betray their Lord Commissars, put them on the crag, you know, <laughs> g- g- throw them a bone, you know, g- give them, give them, you know, compensation for being married or something. I don't know. I, I will say, Brett, um, it's been a while since I've read it, but I do believe from the Gaunt's Ghost series, uh, there was at least one sort of awkward conversation that was dancing around this uh, point we made of like, hey, why aren't we in charge? Uh, there's nothing to go home to. <laughs> this sucks. Uh, so, um, yeah, well, well spotted. And I will say they do have, as far as propaganda go, whether it wouldn't be the I knew a guy who came back from the guard, but um, sometimes in rare cases, they do basically have the retirement plan that you talked about of the Romans um, where they get to keep the land they've been fighting for. Uh, Although I will say, considering the numbers of guardsmen that they put on the planet and how crummy the planet usually is afterwards, that doesn't (laughs) seem like it would be the most motivating uh, piece of propaganda. Like, hey, you get to keep, you know, the Battle of Ypres, uh, like, area <laughs> afterwards. You're like, oh, thanks. Congratulations, here's Jupiter, split it three million, three trillion ways. Yeah, or that way, yeah. I mean, on the on the flip side, right, these guys have have built out their, uh, the technical term here is their primary unit, right, their social group. Um, if you plant that entire unit in a new territory and they can have families and so on, they'll be pretty happy with that. The Romans tend to settle their veterans post-Augustus on the frontier um, by the forts that they were in when they were soldiers, because that's where they've been. In in a sense, they don't go home to Italy, but they do look forward to recommencing civilian life. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the sort of promise you have to to dangle out in front of them. As a side note, if you do want to produce an Imperial Guard Rebellion for some reason, uh, the way to do it is have your Imperial Guard unit called into a major crisis have them win, and then tell them they're not going home. So they've developed all of that cohesion. They have developed an experience of combat. It is no longer as scary for them. And then tell them that they're not going home. And that is the point where you will get a uh, an Imperial Guard rebellion of, of, 
of some scariness, right? Those guys beautiful. who fold their business. That beautiful. That's and, and you actually, you um, actually, you know what? That's that's going to be another tangent uh, that we don't have time for. Uh, <laughs> to wrap up, Steve, uh, is there any other questions you have for Brett? No, that was that was everything I could have wanted. That was awesome, Brett. I I really appreciate it and uh, your time spent here. And it's it's always wonderful to talk about something uh, with someone who knows a lot about it, is passionate about it, and uh, is willing to ramble. And I appreciate that. So thanks. I do enjoy rambling, and I have <laughs> wasted a lot of my life learning a lot of arcane things. I, and if I, you'd like to. Oh, uh, if you'd like say, to, I spent uh, I spent a few years uh, trying to do it. Uh, my history professor, when I told him that I uh, after that grad course I was going to not pursue a history degree, he said, "Good." Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad that someone has because uh, I love talking about it. But I'm definitely glad I'm not doing it professionally. So good, good for you. Yeah, there aren't any there aren't any jobs anyway, so don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> um, if you'd like to hear more about Brett's rambles, Brett, where can they find you online in the interwebs? So, um, right, my uh, blog, A Collection of Unmitigated Pedantry, um, I am at acoup.blog, um, acoup.blog, it's just the, it's just the acronym, um, or you can Google. Um, I am also, uh, social media-wise, I am on the Twitter uh, at, at Brett Devereaux, uh, it's just my name, um, I'm not hard to find, and I like to ramble on Twitter mostly about um, ancient history, military history, and a bit of, of modern um, security, security policy questions, um, since, you know, as military historians, we do tend to ramble on about that. All right. Thank you so much for coming on, Brett. Steve, thank you for putting all of this together. I certainly had a lot of fun. Unfortunately, patrons, I do apologize. We don't have time for some of your questions. However, uh, I will give you all contact information and you can spam Brett on Twitter or on his blog or email uh, with those questions that you have. Um, and hopefully, maybe Brett will be starting a 40K army soon. You can also, you can also, as a side note, um, if you join my Patreon, you can spam me on Patreon. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. If you become a, a 40K philanthropist and just join his Patreon as well, um, absolutely do that. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. You are, of course, all the best listeners in the world. And as always, have a good one.